There is a traditional Chinese story about an old farmer who owned one horse that he uses to plow for his fields. One day, the horse ran away into the hills and never came back. The farmer's neighbors immediately gathered and told him, we're sorry for what happened. What bad luck. The farmer replied, bad luck, good luck, who knows? And so a week later, the horse comes back with a herd of wild horses, which the farmer now owns. And so the neighbors once again go to the farmer and says, we want to celebrate with you for the good luck that you had. The farmer replied, good luck. Bad luck, who knows? And so, one day, his only son was trying to tame the wild horses, and he fell off and broke his leg. And so, again, the neighbors come and tells the farmer, we're so sorry, what bad luck you have. To which the farmer replied again, Bad luck, good luck, who knows? One day, the army came to the village and took all the young men to serve for the emperor's army. The farmer's son was spared because he could not fight because of his broken leg. And so the neighbors came and told the farmer, we're so happy for you, your son is here, what good luck you had. Again, the farmer replied, good luck, bad luck, who knows? Well, the story reminds us that life is filled with uncertainties and we can go through good and bad things in life one after the other. And just like the old farmer, we can resign in bewilderment to the notion of who knows? Who knows what's going to happen next, really? But for today's message, we will be reminded of the one who really knows, the one who calls the shots, if you will. And it is my hope that as we discover what Scripture has to say, our theological understanding will somehow widen or expand. Last week, we began the sermon series on the prophet Habakkuk. Pastor Julio gave us the historical background of the book and introduced us to the first question that Habakkuk asked God. And that is, do you recall that? That is, why do you seem to ignore evil? Well, indeed, for someone who believes in a holy and loving God, it is perplexing and difficult to understand why. God's answer to, Habakkuk, to Habakkuk's question came as a surprise. He was about to raise the Babylonians, a ruthless, godless, violent, and idolatrous people 
who will bring them to exile and inflict upon them the chastisement that God had ordained because of their sinfulness. And so this leads Habakkuk to ask a follow-up question. And that will be for today's sermon. Why do you use evil people or unbelievers to accomplish your purpose? Habakkuk, just like us with limited understanding, had his own theological box. We will examine what's inside that box as we read through our passage for today, starting with verse 12, the first chapter of Habakkuk, when he starts to complain, asking God a question on divine justice. And it reads here, starting with verse 12, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Notice how these verses reveal what is inside Habakkuk's theological box. Habakkuk believes that in verse 12, God exists eternally. He says, are you not from everlasting? You will never die. Habakkuk also believed that God is sovereign, that God calls the shots. What God has ordained and what God has appointed will surely take place. That's also seen in verse 12. And in verse 13, Habakkuk knows that God is a holy God. He says, your eyes are too pure to look at evil. Your holiness will not tolerate evil or wrongdoing. And so because this is what's inside Habakkuk's theological box, he proceeds with a complaint now, asking God, why in your holiness will you allow wicked people to chastise your chosen people? We see that when Habakkuk asked the question in verse 13, why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Now, there's no denial that Judah was wicked and deserves chastisement. But it seems pale when compared to the inhumanity and the wickedness of the Babylonians. It simply does not make sense. A people who are heathen and wicked will be used to punish a covenant people who are less wicked. Do you connect with Habakkuk on that one? Well, allow me to rephrase Habakkuk's question on a more recent historical context. God, why did you allow the Germans under Hitler to annihilate millions of Jews? Why are Christians in many Islamic nations beheaded for their faith? Why is there so much persecution of Christians all around the world? Why did God allow Russia more recently to invade Ukraine 
where there are so many believers and all the senseless killing that's going on. But you know, just like Habakkuk, we may have the tendency to compare ourselves with unrighteous people who are non-believers and think that we deserve better in life. Now when that happens, we begin to ask God why? Because it does not fit our theological box. Can you relate to this? What questions about God's character in divine judgment perplex you or divine justice? Have you ever asked God in the midst of adversity, God, what are you doing? Questions like, if you are a God of love, how can I reconcile that with you being a God of justice? I'm your child. Why is this happening to me? There are unbelievers out there who deserve this more than I do. Oftentimes we say life is so unfair. Why do you allow unbelievers to mock, to ridicule, and persecute us? When will this all end? Why does our culture today despise or detest Christians even if we advocate for the good? Well, the answer to these questions, I believe, hinges on the theological understanding on how we can reconcile divine justice with God's love in relation to his sovereignty as revealed in Scripture. I will get back to expound on the answer on that, on my next point. But as for now, we return to Habakkuk's case. He then decides to wait for God to respond to his complaint. We see that in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will stand by at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. And as he waited on God, he gets an answer with a command and one that reveals more about the person of God. Habakkuk got a theological answer. Verses 2 to 5 reads, And then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. So the enemy is, see, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, Wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive of all the peoples. The response that Habakkuk got portrays and implies the divine non-moral attribute of God called sovereignty. Under God's attribute of sovereignty, Habakkuk will see how God's divine justice works in conjunction with his love for Judah. And so God reveals to Habakkuk what he was about to do. It was a plan he had ordained to take place at an appointed time. God in his sovereignty was saying to Habakkuk, first he said, I have a plan 
and it can never be thwarted. It will never prove false. That's what it says in the verse. And then the second one, although the plan may seem to linger or take time, I know what the perfect timing is for this to take place. So wait for it. Though it linger, it says in our verse, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. And so based on these verses, we can define God's sovereignty as God's power of absolute self-determination. The notion or this notion means God is the ultimate, final, and complete authority over everything and everyone. Scripture absolutely supports that definition in other instances. God's sovereignty was revealed to Judah through the prophet Isaiah. We read that in Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 10. And it says there, remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. He was addressing Judah. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. The prophet Daniel also has this to say about God's sovereignty. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 35. It says there, His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded, are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Well, we may readily accept this understanding about God's sovereignty, but perhaps the more difficult question for us, or even Habakkuk, is reconciling the concept of a God of love and the God of justice at the same time. How can a God of love, who is pure and holy, deliver painful, painful justice at the same time? This question portrays the dilemma. God is either a God who loves and cares, or is he a God who is a sovereign monarch who executes his wrath and divine judgment against sin as he pleases? Well, the answer I submit to you is not either or or. It is actually both and. God is both the God of love the God who cares, the basin and towel God as portrayed by Jesus when he came, and he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who does as he pleases. And I believe the best way for us to be able to reconcile God's love and justice is only through the cross of Jesus Christ. Is it, at the, it is at the cross where God's love intersects with God's justice to appease his wrath against sin. God's wrath against our sin demands a complete satisfaction because he is a holy and just God who cannot tolerate the slightest form of sin. And we know there is only one way which God's wrath against sin can be satisfied. 
It is by death. Absolutely nothing but death can appease the awesome wrath of a holy God so that his justice may be served. Now the cross is where love and justice intersect. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says this. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Other translations use the word propitiation instead of atoning. The term propitiation in this verse means an appeasement or satisfaction for wrath. The cross of Christ propitiated God's justice against sin. While justice was necessary because of God's holiness, love through grace and mercy flowed from the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God did not spare his one and only son from the harm that evil can inflict upon sinful mankind. You see, the cross provides for us two realizations or two things in line with Habakkuk's story. I invite you to take note of these two things whenever you start asking why life is unfair. First, the God who is just sent his innocent, sinless, and perfect son and exposed him to the ruthless or to ruthless and heathen people, in which case the Romans during Jesus' time, so that his purpose for salvation may prevail. The second one is that God remains faithful to his promise of deliverance for his people when he sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. You see, Love and authority cannot be harmonized in one and the same person. It's difficult. It was Lord Acton, who was the person famous for the aphorism, power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. What he said can and often does happen when power is given to human beings. But God is no man that he should abuse the power that rightly belongs to him. The same God who is faithful to keep his promises is also faithful to act in line with his holy and just character. Therefore, there is no need to fear power in the hands of the king of kings who loves and cares for us. One of the few things I struggle with with regards to parenting is disciplining my children. You know, Cecil and I always make it a point to tell our children that we're doing this out of love. But no, no, no. Children struggle with that because of the pain that goes with the disciplinary action. And so it's the same thing for us in God. We sometimes reject God's discipline. And going back, as Cecil and I would 
talk to our children later on, when they get it, they're thankful that they were disciplined because it was for their own good. Such is what happened to Judah. Same thing. And I will be quoting Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12. It says here, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Like I said, the same love was applied to Judah. God had to discipline them. My final point, God's answer also came with a call to faithfulness. After God reminds Habakkuk of his sovereignty in the first five verses of his answer, he proceeds to enumerate a list of what's going to happen to the Babylonians. Habakkuk, like all of us believers, was living between the times, between the promise and the fulfillment. And as we live between the times, one of the things we may struggle with is God's perfect timing. Interestingly, in our passage, when God answered Habakkuk, he tells them of horrible things that he was eventually going to do to the Babylonians. But it was, a, it was for a divine purpose that will only make sense, will only make sense ultimately for those who are righteous. And here's what God says, starting with verse 6, Habakkuk 2, 6 to 7. It says there, Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. It extends all the way to verse 19, starting with verse 6, where God declares a series of horrible woes or afflictions that will eventually befall upon the Babylonians. And so in answer to Habakkuk's complaint, when God executes chastisement or justice using the heathen, he will also apply the same form of divine judgment to them, even worse. There's a difference between these two groups of people. The heathen will end up to nothing and will perish, but the righteous, those who remain faithful, will live to see God's goodness for eternity. God's answer takes us back to a key verse, which is verse 4. It says there, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. When Habakkuk wrote, the righteous shall live by faith, he was echoing a timeless truth from the Old Testament, first modeled by Abraham. Remember Abraham, his Faith was credited to him as righteousness. The righteous man will live in that he will not face God's judgment. Rather, in return for his faith in God, he has been given eternal life. Now, it's starting to make sense. 
God's answer includes a call to faithfulness. The righteous shall live by faith or faithfulness. Habakkuk 2.4 is in fact quoted three times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul quotes it in Romans 1.17, emphasizing the idea that righteousness by faith is for both Jews and Gentiles. He says, for in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Then in Galatians 3.11, we read, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. And here Paul stresses that we are justified or made right before God by faith. The law has no ability to justify anyone. As Habakkuk had recorded, people have always been saved by faith and not by works. God's answer to Habakkuk and to us is to keep the faith when we go through difficult times, through discipline, through chastisement, when we get frustrated and see how the wicked are seemingly blessed and when our questions to him are seemingly left unanswered. But how can we do that? How can we do that? By trusting God in everything. Did you know that trusting God always requires having unanswered questions in life? Let me repeat that. Trusting God always requires having unanswered questions in life. I want us to understand that one way to measure our faith is our faithfulness to God. So we keep trusting Him no matter what. He knows what He's doing and He calls the shots. You know, one of the most painful experiences, emotional experience I've had in life is when my parents went through bankruptcy. I remember I prayed to God and asked God, I think I've shared this once before, and asked God, Lord, no matter what happens, please save my parents. As they were going through that stage of bankruptcy, I asked God like Habakkuk, Lord, why are you doing this? I also tried to justify and told God, God, my parents are generous people. However, little did I know, and now in retrospect, that God was answering my prayer. After 18 years, my parents received Christ as their Lord and Savior, and it took bankruptcy to catch my dad's attention and eventually realize that he needed God and he needed a Savior. It is amazing, but when I was going through that stage, I was complaining. I was telling God, Lord, it's unfair. But now I rejoice. My dad passed away last April, and he's in heaven. I'm so happy that his pastor, 
who uh, is from Texas, by the way, and uh, built a uh, ministered or built a church there in the Philippines, uh, was telling me when we were doing his memorial service how my dad was all of a sudden so much into spiritual life and his relationship with God. So I rejoice, and I'm absolutely sure my dad is in heaven right now. In closing, one of the common catchphrases of our day is user-friendly. We want our gadgets, we want our computers, our phones, our appliances to be user-friendly. It seems clear to me that people in our time are also demanding for a user-friendly God, a God who easily fits our theological box. We also want a God who matters in our personal life and a God to whom we sense that we matter. More than that, we clamor for a God who responds more like a cosmic bellhop, always ready to cater to our every wish and desire. He must be responsive. And he dare not have or exercise much power and authority over us or how we will run our lives. We are happy for a God who cares, but we sometimes have the tendency to reject a God who is king. We welcome the idea of salvation by grace through faith, but struggle with his lordship every time we're asked to obey. This struggle in his lordship, I believe, leads us to question why things happen the way they are. However, and let me put an emphasis to this. However, God is ultimately beyond our full comprehension. You know, when we look at the news today all over the world, we continue to see the forces of evil working and raging. On and on, on and on, the battle rages. And or but as the battle continues, we can remain faithful because we know and we firmly believe in a power that is greater than all who will eventually put an end to all the evil that we are witnessing right now. He is the king of the universe who loves and cares for us. Amen? Amen.